Good morning. You guys look very good out there. The way the lights are, most of you look black. I'm taking my time because I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to speak on. Yes, Kitty. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being our God. And I thank you for the opportunity that you have to do whatever you wish to whomever you wish. Father, you know my desire is that you move me out of the way, that you do control me by your Spirit. For those of us who need comfort, Lord, I pray you would comfort us. And for those of us who need conviction, I pray you would convict us. Lord, you know my deepest desire is that you teach me that others may be taught. In your Son's most holy, precious, and glorious name, we all say, praise God. <laughs> I always, uh, at the church, we always teach everyone to say praise God instead of amen. And the reason why is because we can always tell when there's visitors. <laughs> to hold me in one place they got me anchored so that's the way we can always tell if there's visitors in the church so that if they don't stand or raise their hands the congregation can go ha huh! you didn't stand so now you got to give extra I want to talk to you about competition whenever we hear the word competition the first thing that comes through our mind is athletic endeavors. I have been blessed by God to probably do and accomplish many things in my life that very few will ever accomplish. I have come a long way in my life. I was born a poor white child in Alabama. Basically, everything I put my hand on, I've been successful. I've had very few failures in my life. Even before I was a Christian, I was probably one of the most prejudiced people you will ever meet or have ever met in your life. I didn't like people. I'm the only child. I was 12 pounds when I was born. That's what my mother said, too. <laughs> and she didn't have any other kids because I think she thought the next one could be bigger. <laughs> I grew up basically spending much of my time alone because uh, my mother worked. Uh, my mother was never married. I'm an illegitimate child, born in a poor family. We were so poor when we was growing up that um, we could walk on the backyard and throw the dog a bone, and the dog had to call a fair catch to keep the neighbors from running over him, trying to get it. Some of you get that on the way back to your dorm, and it's going to be real funny. It's going to be real funny. (laughs) 
I was uh, beat very badly by my uncle when I was about five years old. Two major things happened to me when I was in my fifth year on this earth. My uncle beat me unmercifully out back of my home to prove to me that you had many things against you just being born in America and being black at that time. And he decided that he was going to make me a very tough individual, and he beat me literally until I bled. And I remember when we got through, I said, I'm going to get you one day if it's the last thing I do, and you better sleep with one eye open because I'm going to find a way to get you. He said, that's the attitude you got to have to make it in America today. You cannot be equal to anyone of a lighter shade of color than you. You must be three times better to accomplish the same thing they can. The second thing that happened to me when I was five years old was a TV program came on with Roy Rogers and Dell Evans. They was talking about losing their daughter. They talked about God. And they talked about how everyone in some time in their lives is going to have to face God. And it scared me to death as a little boy. Eleven years later, my senior year in high school when I was 16 years old, I bowed my head and accepted Christ sitting in a high school assembly because of what I'd heard 11 years prior from Dale Evans and Roy Rogers. One thing molded my attitude about life and people. The other molded my destiny. And I thank God that I chose the one that led me to the greatest victory, Jesus Christ. Now, that was just a background to tell you about competition. The only reason I went out for football was because I could hurt white people legally that way. I was a better baseball player than I was a football player. I had a tryout with the St. Louis Cardinals when I was 14 years old, St. Louis Cardinals baseball team. And my mother wouldn't let me go, so I moved out when I was 15. My whole life has been molded around winning, around competition, around being the best, around not allowing anyone to outdo me. But I'm here to tell you today that competition in athletics is tiddlywinks. It's nothing. It is immature. It is almost irrelevant when it comes down to the competition between your old nature and your new. When it comes down to walking with God and walking with the world. Now, folks, that's competition. And I believe as athletes and as Christians that the only way you and I are really going to have tremendous amounts of the right perspective in competition is that you have to be content in your life. There is too much in the world today that's going to feel and build your ego if you don't have the right walk with God and you are content regardless what happens to you, because I've seen it, the, birth, the, the best thing that athletics did for me was to help me realize that I needed Christ more. I had what it takes. I was successful. But I was probably one of the most miserable persons in all the world inside. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. 
want to talk to you about some good stuff. Now, I'm really a funny guy. All right? And uh, we're going to have some fun today. There's no doubt. And if you don't have fun, fake it. <laughs> because I'm a very sensitive guy. But I'm the type of person that wants to lay it on the line what I think the Bible teaches. And without contentment, I am a firm believer that you'll never be able to hold and be a good witness for Christ in any competition that you do. There's too many poor in our society that will hurt you in keeping your mind on God when it comes to any competition. There's too many accolades that are given to great athletes, to great winners, competitors, that if you are not solid in your walk with God and you are not content in whatever state you're in, I guarantee you your competition is going to take the best of you and you will not be a good witness for the cause of Christ. Now, I was a Christian who happened to be a football player. I was not a football player who happened to be a Christian. And what I mean by that is my Christianity came first. And I didn't care who it was. I didn't care what team I played for. I don't care what coach I played for. They knew when, at the onset of my career with them personally that my number one issue was when I walked off the field or when I walked off the mat or when I walked out of that ballpark was for the simple reason that today that I do and have a good impression of Jesus Christ. Will people remember Ken Hutchison not because of his athletic ability or how smart he is, but will everybody remember that that young man was a representation of Jesus Christ and they're going to remember me for my walk with God instead of my stats on some book? That is the competition that you and I, as believers, regardless of the endeavor you are in, should have as a goal. Amen? I love it, man, because when I say that, people don't know what to say. Should I pray, pray, pray? God? <laughs> Everyone got Hebrews 11? Sounds great, doesn't it? Turn another leaf. Give a verse. Hebrews 11. Let's look at verse 24. Been a very short time here, and then we're going to go to the Old Testament. I am reading out of King James, Schofield Revised Edition, the same Bible that Jesus Christ used. When he came back to the Americas to teach Joseph Smith about Mormonism. <laughs> by faith by what any aspect of competition if you're going to be successful and come out being a greater witness for Christ than your ability is going to depend upon the amount of faith you have going into the contest by faith Moses when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured in seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians attempting to do were drowned. <laughs> now, let's come up real quickly with a background of Hebrews 11. The only reason I hate talking about Hebrews 11 before we go to the other passages is they are familiar passages. Familiarity always breeds ignorance. And I also hate to teach at Christian schools because there's always teachers. And they listen. And there's those Greek guys. And those Hebrew scholars. And they listen to those athletes from Alabama trying to exposit the word of God. And then they go back to their classes and they laugh at our antics. But today, I'm not going to give you a reason to laugh. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> now, What happened, the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews, and I'm not going to get into the theological debate of who I believe wrote Hebrews, but I know Paul did. Now, the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews was taken and it is built up to what I call the apex of the whole truth of the first 10 chapters is when we get to chapter 11. The whole issue is the superiority of Jesus Christ writing to believing Jews, I believe, to the point of saying, and they proved all the way through their history, everything they held high in the Jewish belief that Jesus Christ was superior. And because of his superiority, saving faith in Jesus Christ, which they said they believed and had accepted, would be no way they could possibly think about going back to the sacrificial system because once you have saving faith in Christ, it is impossible to stop. It is impossible to quit. It is impossible to backslide in such a way that it does not matter to you anymore. Saving faith produces action. And the superiority of faith in Christ and instead of the sacrificial system should take you as a believing Jew, the writer is saying, and put you into grace. And there is no way that you can backslide into the sacrificial system. And let me give you examples of men that had salvation faith. And he talks about all those men and the thing they went through and prove that if you have salvation faith, you're going to endure. Because I believe that if you are a Christian and you have salvation faith, you're going to have some type of fruit in your life. Amen? Maybe raisins, but you're going to have some fruit. Ah! Now, are we ready? This means yes. Thus, I believe that they are teaching that once you have salvation faith and you come to the realization that faith in Christ is better in any situation, regardless how bad, regardless how frustrating, regardless how long you have to endure it, that faith with Christ in any circumstance 
is better than any circumstance you can ever think about, ever dream up, ever want without him. When you come to that conclusion that you can be content in any circumstance with Jesus Christ, regardless how bad it is, regardless how long it is, regardless how much suffering and how much you have to do without, if you can come to the conclusion that that life is better than anything you could ever think about, you are truly emancipated, you are truly content, and you can truly compete without anything getting in the way and without complaining. Do you know that Christian is the number one activist when it comes to complaining? No one complains more than believers who is supposed to have all the answers. And no one has more right to complain at times than believers on the way we're treated. I know a Quaker one time that got real serious with God and said, God, I can see why you don't have as many friends as you do because of the way you treat the few you got. Amen? You ever felt that way? No? Good. By faith, we're dealing with this. Abraham, by faith, and it goes down through all of the patriarchs, and now we get to Moses to deal with our story today. Verse 28, through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he be, that destroyed the firstborn should touch him. Please turn back with me to the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 12. We get to the tenth plague. Now, if you don't think this is competition, folks, you think about the competition between God and Pharaoh. Moses is just a figure. If you're going to compete correctly, you're going to have to realize that it is not you that is in the competition. It is you representing Christ and how Christ is going to be looked upon after you get out of that competition. When I played football, oftentimes what guys were trying to do is they knew I was a Christian and they was always trying to get me upset. My rookie year in pro ball, I had one fight every game of my rookie year. And it had absolutely nothing to do, nothing to do with my ability to play ball. Most of it was my stand with Jesus Christ. And they was going to prove that this guy really wasn't standing for Christ. It wasn't a very important or famous thing to do to stand up and give testimony for Christ when I started playing pro professional football. Everyone thought you was weak, they thought you was uh, unmanly, and they thought you was just a plain wimp. So we went out, and with Christ's power, with Christ's leadership, and with my ability to say I'm playing for Christ, every time I walked off the field, they realized that they had ran into a man that really believed what he believed and lived up to it, and I guarantee you, none thought that I was a wimp. Amen. Maybe I better say a woman. I get a better response, huh? Now, some of you get it on the way to the dorm. That's extremely funny. <laughs> we come to the competition, and it is competition. It is Pharaoh against God with his representative, Moses. Verse 1, chapter 12, Exodus. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of month. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. 
in the Jewish calendar, that is the month of Nisan Abib, and that's somewhere between March and April. And isn't it amazing that if we look at our calendar, the Lamb of God was probably born in the month of Nisan, somewhere around March or April. And it isn't it amazing also that the Lamb of God that was sacrificed was also sacrificed on the day of the Passover, Jesus Christ on the cross. But I threw that out. That's absolutely free. Amen? Okay, right there. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goat. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Here we go. Are we going to do things God's way, even in competition? Are we going to follow the rules according to what has been set up in competition? Are we going to be a good witness at the end of that competition, as we were before we started that competition, knowing that I have been a great access to the furtherment of God's kingdom? Now, what do you mean by that? I'm glad you asked. They got the lamb on what day of the month? The tenth day. How long were they supposed to keep the lamb? How many? Four days. Four days. Why did they keep it four days? To prove that it had no blemish. If it had a blemish, they had to replace it. Some of us have our talents and our abilities for four decades. God allows us to keep it. Some have our ability for only one decade. Some has that ability for only four years. Some one or two days. Athletes, Christian athletes, Christian people get hurt all the time. The problem is that you don't know how long you have that ability for God. But while you have it, make sure you prove that it does not have a blemish in the aspect of walking and living for God. You get the lamb. Now there's 603,550 males inside of Israel at this time. They came to, to Egypt with about 75 people. Woohoo! 400 years later, there's 603,550 men, not counting women and children. God blessed. Amen? Now we're thinking about if there's 603,000, how many households do you think is in this command? Now, let's bring it down even more. How many animals? How many cute little sheepies? How many little lamby pies is going to be killed? Now, if God was giving this command today, who would be upset? Who would be upset at this? Killing over 500,000 sheep for a religious purpose. Who would be mad at this? Animal activists. Oh! They have feelings! I'm going to tell you straightforward where you don't have to guess. I do not believe animals are more important than people. I believe they need to be treated with kindness and understanding, yes. But as far as being more important than people, I have one theological statement for that. (laughs) 
these sheep has got to die. Now, my question is, did I say that killing sheep was the greatest thing in the world? Did I say that? No. And if it gets out in California that Pastor Hutchinson said it was a great thing to kill sheep, I'm going to be back here. I'm coming back to check you out. I got a wide-angle lens, and we're taking pictures of who's here. And I will personally come and have some competition with you. <laughs> I am not saying anything except what is more important, what the world thinks or what God commands. And so much of our competition, so much of our thoughts, so much of our ways have been so molded, even in Christian circles, about how the world thinks about things that you can't tell what's godly or ungodly anymore unless you deal with just the word alone. Wow. God did not ask people how they felt about sheep. He said, do it. I got another question for you. You ready? Huh? Are you ready? What's this? This is sweet. And they shall, verse 7, and they shall take up the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, unleavened bread, with a little couple of bitter herbs. Maybe some seasoned salt and uh, some butter and, oh, just throw some of all that cholesterol stuff in there, and they shall eat it. Now, my question to you is this, folks. What if you are Jewish and a vegetarian? Can't hear you. What are you going to do? Hmm? What are you going to do? You're going to eat it. You see, my thing is this. Whenever you're going to be in competition and do things God's way, you're going to have to do it according to God's rule, not Man's rule. Did I say that vegetarians was bad? Did I say that? No, I did not say that. But I am saying this. Personal feeling, personal thought, personal thinking, and personal values are set aside according to what the Word of God dictates. Amen? There's nowhere in the Bible that they said that you could substitute a lamb with a head of lettuce and take one of the leaves and spread it across the doorpost. And you're going to be protected. God said animal. God said what the type of animal. God said to kill it. And God said to take his blood and to spread it around the doorpost. And he never asked you and I 
how you felt about the whole issue. Now, what is so significant about this Passover? Let me see if I can bring it down to earth to you. The significance of the Passover is it is the only plague that was given in the time of the Israelites going against Pharaoh that they basically had to do something to protect themselves. The, all the other nine plagues was basically toward just the Egyptians. Number 10 was totally different. It was all-inclusive. And obedience to that inclusivity, if that is such a word as that, but I'm an athlete so I can get away with a lot of things, was the simple fact that if you do it this way, you will be saved. It doesn't matter what religion, doesn't matter what competition, do it God's way and you always come out on top. Now, you got to picture this because all the other plagues dealing with the Egyptians was really hilarious. Now, I have been, that the first part of this has been my serious part. We have about 10 to 15 more minutes and we're going to have lots of fun when we go to the next section. But can you imagine, folks, <laughs> the wisdom of man. God says, okay, give them frogs. Frogs everywhere. Then the Egyptian magicians says, oh, no big deal. We can do the same thing. So they made more frogs. Ooh, intelligent. Instead of having every four inches, 16 frogs, they got 32 frogs every 16 inches. Ooh, what a glorious time to be in Egypt. All because man is going to decide that God's way is not the best way. This school's in competition. Competition with other schools. Do you realize that if you do it man's way, you could probably double the amount of students here in no time? But if you do it God's way, you may eliminate a lot of students coming. But is that bad? Oh, we don't believe that one. We'll say no. We truly don't believe that. Because God's work done God's way in a competitive world always never lacked God's supply in a time of trouble. Oh. You want some gnats? i give you some gnats. And I give you flies. And for nine, check this out. For nine straight plagues, Pharaoh wanted his magicians to try to do it. And after the frogs, they said, we can't do it. This must be the hand of God. And then God says, it's time to quit playing games. And he brings the tenth plague on them. And he turns them loose after the tenth plague when God wipes out the firstborn of every home that did not have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. So the angel came, saw the blood, and passed over that home and left the firstborn alive. I want to ask you a question, young people, in between people, old people. I want to ask you a question. What type of hurt do you think was in the land when they got up that morning and the firstborn of everything was dead? How do you think the atmosphere was? 
They competed against the way God says to compete, and they lost. Do you realize probably some families was wiped out? What if a firstborn husband, a man, married a firstborn wife and had only one child? That whole family was wiped out. Can you tell me the amount of suffering and crying that was happening in the land of Egypt that morning after that competition? And God let them free. Now go with me to your right, to chapter 14, just down the neighborhood from where you are, to this new address, 1413. We find them at the Red Sea, 14.13. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more, never again. And the church said, Oh, let's try that again. Are you guys not enjoying this? What? This is so much fun. Now watch this. And Moses said, you will never see the Egyptians again. And the church said? All right. Now see, that's kicking. Now, what takes place here is Pharaoh and all of his army realizes that the Egyptians are not coming, the uh, Israelites are not coming back. Now you got to understand something, folks. It, the Egyptian culture at this time was at the apex of his growth and civilization. Now God gets involved in the nation and it is totally devastated. It is wiped out. And do you realize to this very day it has never recovered once God got a hold of it, it never has recovered to where it was. And I'm saying to you and I as believers, we better start standing up in America because if God ever gets a hold of us because of the way we are going and the way we as believers are allowing our country to go, we'll never recover. But all of a sudden, Pharaoh is hot and it's time for more competition. <laughs> now, there's got to be somebody, one soldier in the whole army of the Egyptians that don't think this is a good idea. You know what I mean? Now, here's Pharaoh. You got to picture this. Pharaoh's got to give a pep talk. To his soldiers. Okay, guys, we can do it. We can do it. They got lucky the first ten times, but we can do it. I want you to get there and I want you to get muscle up. I want you to get fired up. I want you to psych yourself up. I want you to sharpen them swords both sides, baby. We're gonna go get them. There's gotta be one soldier that's thinking. Are you crazy? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> it's got to be one soldier. But oh, let me tell you something about competition, folks. The most negative situation in all the Bible has one of the most positive aspects of leadership I have ever seen in my life. And that is every soldier that's in the army of Pharaoh submitted to the authority that they was under, even though they probably knew they was going to get wiped out. They was obedient. And here we have a secular army that don't know nothing about God, but they do know how to listen 
to the authority they are under. And you and I as believers, when we get in competition and things start getting rough and it don't look like God's going to come through, we start trying to figure out ways of how to bail out and not be and totally obedient to what has been commanded of you and I. This is smoking. The Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your, pay, your peace. Check that out. Did you hear that? Who shall fight for you? The Lord shall fight for you. In competition, who should be the one that's going to get the greatest glory out of it? You or God. If your motivation in competition is for God to get the glory, you will always do your best regardless how tired, how much it seems that it's impossible to win. You will always give your best because you are not the recipient of what is going to take place. God is. The Lord will fight for you. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore cried thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. But lift up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them and I will get me honor over Pharaoh and over all his hosts, over his chariots and over all his horsemen. See what this says? In this matter, and this is competition, folks. It's a war. And don't tell me that this isn't competition. It's not whether I'm going to win or lose the game. It's whether I'm going to win or lose my life. And that's how I lived my life. That's how I played every play of athletics when I was playing for Christ. Was that after the end of this play, will Christ be glorified? Because God is the object of my playing. And when I walk off the field, regardless if anyone remembers the plays I have done, will they remember that I was Christ-like while I was doing it? And Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor over Pharaoh, over his chariots, over his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of the Israelites. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these so that the one came not near the other all night long. Please! Please help me understand this. There's got to be somebody in the Egyptian army that knows something isn't right. Here they come. Ha, ha, ha. They're hot, man. They're going to go and have some Egypt, uh, Israelite shish kebabs. Woo-hoo. Let's get them, boys. One for the firstborn. Boom. And here they come. Dust is flying everywhere. And all of a sudden, the Israelite, who should be totally happy by now because they've seen what God have done over and over and over and over again is not content and here they are complaining crying <laughs> God takes a pillow of fire sits it down between the Egyptians and the Israelites now this is what gets me at night it's a pillow of fire but what is the number one characteristic of fire at night it gives light. Oh, but it's dark on their side and light on the Israelite side. Do you think there's some brains in, the, in Egypt? I don't know, but I think it should have been one soldier that would say, Hey, Pharaoh! Hey! Hey, Pharaoh! 
you know, check this out, bro. I mean, we're talking about a pillar fire death. It's no harm in going back home, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, where are their brains? Exactly the same place the world's brain is today when they think that their way is better than God's way, even though all the evidence points towards God. Pillar fires removed, east wind blowing all night, split the Red Sea, walled. I think the Hebrew word that's used is it jailed. The walls jailed. You hear like jello? Isn't that sweet? And uh, I like to, if a refrigerator could do it, God can do it. Amen? Just jail that stuff right up. I always thought that it was kind of like just solid water when you go across and there was no movement. But if it jails, the walls probably move. And they had to walk across in that movement on dry land. Ooh, when that's smoky, God moves the pillar of fire, then all of a sudden, there's a road there that's never been there before to the Egyptians. And Pharaoh says, let's go. And they went. The greatest negative positive in all the Bible. Submission to authority when it didn't make absolutely no sense. I think the greatest aspect of the whole story is not written. And that is the fish. Amen. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the fish have been able to swim that section. And just like any other morning, let's go for breakfast. Charlie, come here, man. <laughs> and as it went down into the sea, God got them down there. All their wheels fell off the chariot. And all of a sudden, there was a King James term that came out very loudly in the whole aspect of the Egyptian army. And they said, hark. God's fight it for them. Ooh, too late now, buddy. <laughs> and they drowned. The greatest aspect of this story, folks, is the fact that God is the apex of our competition. And you do not have to defend God. God has done it well enough without you and I, and he will continue to do it without you and I if we will hold to the word of God and we will live the Word of God and that everything we do, whether it is eating, whether it is writing, whether it is working, whether it is playing, whether it is an athletic endeavors, whether it is in marriage, whether it is in relationships, the final result of any of those things is for the glory of God. And I love critics as we close because they jump on this and say, you know that it was the Reed Sea. Which, that is the name, it's the Reed Sea. And that it is only 10 inches deep. 
and I say, praise God. Ooh, that sounded good. I said, praise God. That is even a greater miracle. God drowned all of Pharaoh's army <laughs> in 10 inches of water. Ah, and the greatest part would be to be able to view God making those horses submit to stick their nose in that water. Thank you very much. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being our God. May we be men and women of God. May we believe in you. May we die to ourselves and remove us out of the way. May we be like the Egyptian army in obedience to you regardless of what the circumstances look. May we be content in knowing that we are here for your glory, not ours. And Lord, the only way that we can truly compete in a Christian way is to love and have faith in you and know that you are God and no matter what happens to us, if it brings glory to your name, we are glorified with you for what is yours is ours and what is ours is yours and we shall be glorified indeed. In Jesus' most holy, most precious, most victorious, most loving, most gracious, most long, most everlasting name, we all say, praise God.